I wonder what, I wonder what decisions you have for 2024. I'm wondering what choices are before you as you face the new year. And so I want us to think biblically about those decisions and those choices. I want to talk about that this morning. And uh, to do that, I want us to look at um, several passages of Scripture. So this is going to be like a topical message, but it's going to be biblical in that we're going to be looking at more than one hunk of Scripture for this issue of divine guidance. Divine guidance. I want to put a tag on this message. Divine guidance for Okies and other ordinary people. All right? So I'm from Oklahoma, if you're new, uh, and I'm an Okie. So divine guidance for Okies and other ordinary people. I'm going to read from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, and then I'm going to read from Proverbs 4, verses 7 through 9, and then I'm going to read from Proverbs 16, 1 through 9, and then we're going to go to the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, I've got all the scriptures up here. You can just follow along with them. Um, but that's, I'm, so I'm going to read these verses here without interruption, starting with Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And again, it's about, it's a, we're, we're answering the question, how can we think biblically, how can we be Bible-wise about divine guidance? Divine guidance. Proverbs 3. Hear these words from the Word. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his way but the Lord establishes his steps. And then for this last verse, I want us to read it together. Here we go. 
But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is the word of the Lord. Divine guidance for Okies and other ordinary people. So this week I read a story about a man named Rick. I have a little brother named Rick, but not that Rick. This Rick is a talented graphic designer. He worked for an advertising firm, but he was kind of put off by the culture of cutthroat competition. He chafed at the quest of making partner, along with the low morale and the pressure to produce. So he began to ponder the thought of striking out on his own, which would then make him a competitor out of his employer. He wanted to have control of his schedule, yet, yet there was a risk, right? He, he had a family, and, and if he failed, he could lose his house. He could lose his savings. What's he going to do? So Rick started praying for divine direction. God, should I go? Should I stay? And you know, He started looking for ways in which God might answer. He, he began looking for potential clients who might appear in, in, in rather unusual ways. He began to listen for God's voice in his own thoughts, and maybe some special divine impression that might stand out as from God. And then he began to think about some tests that he could employ to decide the issue. For example, if on the day of his conversion to Christ, the, the anniversary of his conversion to Christ, if on that day he went to the break room for coffee and overheard gossip, he would consider that a sign that the place was corrupt and that it was time to leave. But then that began to get him thinking about his own life, and so he began to self-reflect, and and Rick began to be bothered by his own shortcomings. Back in college, he went to an Urbana conference and signed up for mission work, but he didn't follow through because his university advisor frowned on the thought and what would have happened had he gone to the mission field. I mean, he began to be haunted by that. He, he could have been baptizing converts instead of creating advertisements. And, and his life, he began to think that you know, he was like Jonah fleeing and, and that he was so far from God, how was he ever going to be able to get back given his current disobedient plan? But of course, he can't just rewind things because you know he's married now and he has children. He's got a mortgage and... So he just assumed he was going to have to settle for plan B for the sake of his marriage and his three kids and his mortgage. Plan B. Rick. Now what just happened here? What just happened? Here's what happened. What what started as an exhilarating hope about a conceivable future quickly devolved into discouragement and despair. And Rick found himself lost in a maze. Anybody here like him? Does anybody here maybe have a story that might resonate with Rick's story? This this challenge of discerning and deciphering God's will. The, the, The challenge of the question, 
God, what do you want for my life? What's your will? Should I take this job or should I stay? Do I move or not? Which university should I attend? I've been accepted to six. I mean, God, which is it? Should I marry? I mean, if so, who? Should I purchase this house? What about this car? School for kids. School for kids. Should, should, should we go private? Should we go public? Should we go homeschool? Some sort of co-op or hybrid? How do I think biblically about divine guidance? So as we consider this question this morning, um, here's where we're going. Uh, I want to talk about you know, three areas. Number one, I want to talk about, here it is, Illinois corn mazes. Didn't see that one coming, did you? Illinois corn mazes, Colorado Rockies, and then Jesus. You knew I was going to do the third, right? But that's where I want to go here today. Let's talk about Illinois corn mazes, Colorado Rockies, and the kingdom of God. And, and again, um, let, me tell you, let me tell you why this sermon on this Sunday, first Sunday of the new year, and as I asked before, what decisions are awaiting your attention? And how will you make them? And as your pastor who loves you, and as your brother in Christ, and as your friend, I want us to be wise. I want us to be Bible wise. I, and I want us to be free. I believe that what we're about to learn will free us in ways that maybe we didn't think so when we, when we came in here. And so I want us to taste, and I, I want us to be wise, I want us to be free, because we have tasted and we have seen that the Lord is good. Amen? So let's talk about corn mazes. You know, one of the activities that uh, Midwesterners enjoy each fall is the corn maze, right? You enter the maze, and you make various turns, and you hit dead ends, and then you back up, you try again, and eventually you get out, but there's kind of really only one way out. And you've got to figure it out. And many well-meaning Christians, including pastors, think of God's will this way like navigating an Illinois corn maze. Many well-meaning Christians and their pastors assume that God has this, as one author put it, an ideal, detailed life plan un uniquely designed for me, which is on me to figure out. God has the intelligence on, on what this path is. The path is all set. All I need to do is find it. And the, the one path that's for me, the one path that exists among many pathways, the Randall Allen Bolting House path, the, the personalized, specified, customized, individualized, bespoke will of God for me. Randy, go find it. But that assumption about what God's will is brings with it a lot of pressure. Can you feel it? I can feel it because, you know, at, at, at 
certain amount of time, you've got to make a decision about something. And when it's time to choose, then it kind of feels like you're in that corn maze. And you begin to assume that there's just one way out. And all the other options are dead end and bad choices. And God knows the right way and I must find it. And the pressure is on because there's consequences. And the clock is ticking and it's time to decide. Am I going to enter that university or, or that one? Or, or am I going to take this job or not? Or am I going to marry? And if so, I mean, will it be this person or not? And, and, if, and if I choose wisely, if I, if I you know, if I, if I choose the path, that God has uniquely custom-made for me, then I'm going to get a smile. And if I choose poorly, then I'm stuck in this maze. And I'm going to miss God's will. And I'm going to have to settle for the plan B path. So, we go to church. We attend small group. We read our Bible. uh, We pray. All very important activities. And we perform these religious exercises sincerely as well. Yet we do so anticipating, maybe even expecting God to reveal to us the one particular path that he wants us on. This house, this job, this spouse. And, and, and we do so pleading that we might hear his voice. And the moment finally arrives, but we got to choose. And yet that nagging question remains, What if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong? Has anybody ever felt that? Yeah, me too. Oh, in complicating matters more, you and I live in a nation of unprecedented choice. I'm thinking about the book by uh, Professor Barry Schwartz. Barry Schwartz. It's called The Paradox of Choice. He tells about shopping at his local grocery store. We're not talking about a superstore, mind you. We're just talking about a, your average grocery store. And there, Barry Schwartz found 285 varieties of cookies, 13 sports drinks, 65 box drinks, 85 kids' juices, six, 75 iced teas, 95 types of chips and pretzels, 15 kinds of bottled water, 80 different pain relievers, 40 options for toothpaste, 150 lipsticks, 360 types of shampoo, 90 different cold remedies, 230 soups, 75 instant gravies, 275 varieties of cereal, 65 types of barbecue sauce, and 22 types of frozen waffles. I need a nap. I mean, who has the energy to make those new decisions with each trip to the store? I might get the barbecue sauce I want and then use it, and then I go back and I forget which one it was. Could it be that we worry over getting God's will right because we already experience choice overload in our American culture? Because we think choice makes us happy, but there comes a point, and and most of us are well past it, where we would actually be better off with fewer choices. Of course, it's one thing to make a mistake about barbecue sauce. It's another thing to make a mistake about where you go to school or who you marry. Am I going to have to settle for a Romans 8, 28 marriage? And we know that in all things, God works together for the good to them that love him. Really? That's no fun. But you see, everything I've said so far is built on the corn maze model of God's will. 
Did, did you see how the corn maze model just brings anxiety and worry even to the conscientious believer? I mean, how can you plan if you're afraid you're going to be wrong? And, and, mind you, it can create an artificial caste system of spirituality. Right, you know, we, we come to church here and we look across the aisle and we, our eyes lock to another person or another family and we think, well, they're on the A-team, it's clear by what you can see. They're on the A-team, but, but us, we're, we're on the B-team. We're on the B-team. And that's if you just make one mistake, right? I mean, what if you make multiple mistakes? Well, I've got to go to the C-team and now the D-team and pretty soon I'm going to run out of letters here. And oh, 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 and if I choose the wrong spouse, then, then the person who was supposed to marry Sarah, then they've chosen the wrong person, and then that person has chosen the wrong, and there's this, this domino effect, it's a chain reaction. Do you see how heavy this is, folks? See, here's the problem with the corn maze model. It, it fixes our gaze on what seems to be major decisions, which may not turn out to be as major as we think. For instance, we deliberate about universities and careers and house purchases and marriage or not. And this is reasonable. It's totally reasonable. At the same time, how much do we deliberate about the amount of TV that we consume in the week? Oh, now I'm meddling. Or, or, or the amount of social media that we consume. Or, or ways that we can encourage and come alongside our children See, those are small decisions, yes. And don't those small, everyday decisions compound far more than the big decisions we occasionally are called upon to make? See, little choices which we ignore are often weightier than the big choices over which we obsess. That's why I like what Paul David Tripp has said. He writes that the character of a life is not set in two or three dramatic moments, rather in 10,000 little moments. The, the character that was formed in those little moments is what shapes how you respond to the big moments of life. What leads to significant personal change? Tripp says it's 10,000 little moments. 10,000 little moments of conviction. 10,000 little moments of humble submission. 10,000 little moments of foolishness exposed and wisdom gained. 10,000 little moments of sin confessed and sin forsaken. 10,000 little moments of courageous faith. 10,000 little choice points of obedience. 10,000 times of forsaking the kingdom of self and pursuing the kingdom of Christ. 10,000 little moments where we abandon the worship of creation and instead give ourselves to the worship of the creator. And what makes all this possible? Relentless, transforming, little moment grace. That's what. Jesus is Emmanuel, not just because he came to earth, but because he makes you the place where he dwells. And this means he's present and active in all the little moments of your daily life. And in those little moments, he's delivering every redemptive promise that he made to you. In these remarkable little moments, 
He's working to rescue you from you and transform you into his likeness. By his sovereign grace, he places you in daily little moments that are designed to take you beyond your character, and beyond your wisdom, and beyond your grace so that you seek help from his character and his grace and his strength where, where true life can only be found in him. And it's a lifelong process of change, church. He's undoing you and rebuilding you again and again. Yeah, I came here to say that the corn maze model of divining God's will is bogus. So let's go to the Rockies. Let's talk about the Rockies. See, when it comes to God's will, it's more like mountain trekking accompanied by Christ. It's, I'm not talking about a corn maze. I'm talking about a mountain vista. Because you see, Jesus is more interested in who I am becoming than the geographic coordinates where I seek to be arriving. And he will do this by means of, the scripture calls it the way of wisdom. 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 Wisdom is spiritual insight from training that helps you act skillfully before God. I'll say that again. Spiritual insight from training that helps you act skillfully before God. That's wisdom. And, and, and it takes wisdom. It takes wisdom to know what to do when your child comes home from school with a black eye. It takes wisdom to know what to do when you come into an unexpected amount of money. It takes wisdom to know what to do when you lose your job. And the Bible promises wisdom. Mountain, vista, wisdom. But wisdom comes by means of a relationship with God more than data that's why proverbs 3 5 and 6 say trust in the lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding so so submission to him is more important than data points from him a personal connection to him is more important than me obsessing over a, a right decision that I want from him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Wisdom. It's a spiritual skill. And that's why Proverbs 4, 7 through 9 says, whatever you do, whatever you do, get wisdom. Get wisdom. Get insight. And what we learn is that wisdom is more about developing character than discovering a specific data-driven plan. That's why Proverbs 16, 1 through 9, which we read, I mean, talks about character issues. Look at 16, 2 again. God wants me humble enough to, to admit that I could be wrong. I mean, I, you know, I think I'm pure, but really only God knows. 
That's why in Proverbs 16, verse 3, it says, commit your work to the Lord. It doesn't mean you do your work and then pray real hard about it and then it'll all turn out your way. No, it means literally roll your work over onto the Lord with there's a sense of finality. God, I surrender. My hands are off it. I'm rolling it onto you. This is yours. And then you leave it there. That's why Proverbs 16, verses 4 and 5 say that arrogance and evil will not go unpunished. That's why Proverbs 16, 6 says, by steadfast love and faithfulness and reverent fear for God, that's how evil and iniquity are forgiven. Now, so these verses inform us that, that planning and living God's will concern becoming more than finding, you see. And that doesn't mean that plans don't matter. Please don't leave here saying, well, the preacher says don't plan. That's not what the preacher says. Okay. Good. I mean, Proverbs 6 talks about go to the ant, you sluggard, and see how the plans that the ant makes for the coming winter. So, no, it doesn't mean that plans don't matter. For, for example, in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, James James does not criticize planning. He criticizes planning that does not factor God into the equation. Which is why he says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So, so the problem is not going into a town and running a business and spending a year there and making a profit. That, that's not the problem. The problem is you have not factored God into the equation. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. And we're not talking about just a perfunctory, yeah, yeah, if the Lord wills, and then I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. No, no, no. I mean, God, this is yours. We, if God, your will, we will live and do this or that. James says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. So, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Okay. So, <laughs> it doesn't say don't plan. It says don't neglect to factor God into the equation when you plan. P planning is better than not planning. But rather than being presumptuous about the future, we must focus on God's will in the present. And, 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 and one of you may say, yeah, but, but, yeah but, just, but what is God's will? What is God's will? Here's God's will. Here's God's will. We've already spoken it aloud. Let's speak it again aloud. Here it is. Matthew 6, 33. Here it is. 1, 2, 3. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's God's will, brothers and sisters to become more and more like Jesus, to follow Jesus, to passionately pursue Christ. That's it. Jesus' teaching is simple to grasp, but hard to practice. And, and so, so here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying in view of the context of the entire Matthew 6 section there. Stop asking God to show you the future and instead live like you believe he holds the future. So, so rather than worrying yourself sick like every other unbelieving American does about the economy or the elections or the job market, instead, seek the kingdom of God first. He is not going to defraud us, church. 
God's will is that we look to him. That's his will. He will take care of us. Do you believe that? Jesus said, Jesus said this. You only have enough bandwidth for today's worries. And so we discover our calling then, not by trying to define, to divine our life 10 years out to the T, but by it's being attentive to what God is doing through the immediate circumstances and the day-by-day little moments. And over time, as we become skilled in that day-by-day trusting God, then, then our sense of calling will simply unfold naturally as the scenery unfolds, like backpackers hiking their way through the mountains. Rarely will we be able to see the whole pathway stretched out before us at any one time. Sometimes we're, we're only going to be able to see far enough ahead to keep going. Divine guidance is less like a corn maze and more like trekking through the Rocky Mountains. And there's beauty along the, uh, the way. And mostly, there's a companion who wants to walk with you. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So divine direction starts with unrestricted submission, not information. And you might have a dozen decisions to make, wishing that God would tell you exactly what to do and where to go and how to choose. Here's my location and here's the destination. Push go on the map quest or the ways or whatever your app is. Just do what you're told. But maybe that's not how God rolls. Let's say you've got a five-year-old. And that five-year-old wants to play out in the backyard. And you say, that's fine. You can play for 30 minutes, and then you come in, and I'll set the timer. And, and then when you come in, you're going to wash your hands, get ready for dinner, and clean up your room. And then after that's going to be bath time, and then after that's going to be time for bed. And you give very specific instructions because you've got a five-year-old. Fast forward 15 years. Now he's 20. And it's dinner time, and he calls from his college dorm and says, Hey, Dad, would it be okay if I go down to the gym and work out before I eat and do my homework? What? Figure it out. Make a decision. Now, now there's some parents who would love to tell their 20-year-old what to do. But does a wise father guide his child by formulating a plan that covers every detail of a child's life and then in full downloading the step-by-step plan when each decision has to be made? kind of like an automobile navigation system? No. A wise father does not do that. The father who is truly wise will teach the child some, some, some wisdom about life. That's what the book of Proverbs is for. It's wisdom literature. Just teach what's right and what's wrong and what's wise and what's foolish and then train the child to develop the skill of wisdom. And then when the father sees the child mature, the father's overjoyed because the father now sees that the child is free. I want you to be free. And you're free because you've bound yourself to love. You've bound yourself to loving God and loving others, and you've become trained in that. And so the, the, the wise father is, is overjoyed because their son or daughter has grown up and is therefore prepared to live in the real world and make responsible choices. 
And I think that's the way our Heavenly Father is with us. Our, our Father is our guide, but His means of guidance is going to be different than the corn maze approach. And that means that discerning His will, please hear me on this one, discerning His will feels foggy out in the future, but it's extremely concrete in the present. Does that tell us something? Jesus wants us to master the skill of seeking his kingdom first, loving him most, and then giving evidence of that by loving others. And when we focus on that, our plans will be fine. Now, someone may be sitting there thinking, well, okay, well, Pastor, are you saying that God doesn't know everything about my future? Nope, I didn't say that. Did not say that. Our God is almighty and all-knowing and all-present. He is. Nothing's too hard for him. There's nothing he can't do. What I'm saying is that just because God knows everything about my life, including the ever-decreasing number of hairs on my head, just because God knows my days here on this earth, just because God knows the precise details of my future, does not mean that he intends to reveal it to me. Nor does it obligate him to do so. Isn't that what the book of Job teaches us? Job never knows Job 1 and 2. He never knows that. And uh, if Isaiah, if the prophet Isaiah is true, beloved, and I believe he is, then there's a, there's a level of knowledge that's beyond my pay grade. Isaiah 55, 9, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts your thoughts. Uh, one scholar called it, uh, this is a very good phrase, toxic knowledge. Toxic knowledge. And, and, and what does that mean? It means I'm just not ready for that. I'm just not ready to know that. But you're 62. I know. I mean, there, his ways are not my ways. His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts, you see. So, so, so our walk with God is not a matter of cleverly cracking open his secret will for our lives. Instead, it's about walking daily before him in faith and trust. That's why Deuteronomy 29, 29, it's a wonderful verse. Please write it down. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are some things God's not talking about. And we just need to have peace with that. But there are revealed things that he wants us to do. So we simply need to do what we already know in the present. And God's been absolutely clear where clarity is most needed. And so the choices that we make every day to love a spouse after an argument, to treat an unkind worker with respect, to serve food at a, a soup kitchen, those things determine whether or not we're doing the will of God and if we have a problem, it's not for lack of knowledge. Rather, it's our unwillingness to act on the knowledge that we have.
So, beloved, read your Bible. Start with the book of Proverbs. It's the wisdom book. You want to know about wisdom? Read Proverbs. Or go to Philippians. That's where we're going to be going here in a few weeks. Joy in the hard places. God, how can I have joy in the hard places? Well, Philippians tells us how. Read your Bible. Pray. Ask God for wisdom. Get wisdom. Get insight. God, give me wisdom. God, what the best question ever. God, what is the wise thing for me to do? What is the wise thing in light of my past, in light of my present, in light of my future? What's the wise thing for me to do? Read your Bible. Pray. Ask God for wisdom. Listen. Be in community. So, so the best question ever is, God, what's the wise thing for me to do? The next best question is to go to someone who is wise and say, what do you think is the wise thing for me to do? See? And listen. Read your Bible. Pray. Be in community. Listen. And then make a decision. Make a decision. You say, well, what if I mess up? You're going to mess up. It's a sinful, broken, fallen world. People mess up. God has already factored your mess-ups and my mess-ups into the one plan that he has for us. There's no plan B or plan C or plan D. There's just one plan, which for my benefit, God has determined to reveal one day at a time. So right now, if you came here because you wanted to seek the kingdom first and worship Christ most and love him and love others, you're doing God's will. You're doing it right now. And that is no insignificant thing. Jesus wants us to devote our time and energy to all the 10,000 little tasks that he wants us to do, not just to the few big decisions. And those little responsibilities, which are here today with absolute clarity, oh, we master those, then they prepare us for the big responsibilities later on. Because you never know when your Alaskan Airlines door is going to pop off at takeoff. And you never know when you're going to need to land in the Hudson. And all those little things made a difference then, right? And the wise decisions in the little set the stage for the big decisions that are awaiting me around the corner. And faithfulness in the ordinary readies us for the extraordinary. And that's why Jesus said in Luke 16, 10, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in the very little is also dishonest in much. Church family, be faithful. And thank God that we have the help of one who was flawlessly faithful, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said that his life's calling was to do the will of of his Father in heaven. And this will includes seeking and saving the lost and serving, not being served, and giving himself as a ransom for many. In contrast to the knowledge that would promise man independence from God, Jesus revealed God in a non-toxic, non-lethal, life-giving way. Jesus told us what we needed to know to be reconciled with God and have new life in him jesus death on the cross changed our fearful and arrogant hearts so that we can be joyful creatures not frustrated little gods
And we can now trust him who holds the future and focus on living for him in the present. And that's why it's so liberating. And that's why he says his burden is easy and his yoke is light. Jesus gives us truth that sets us free. He did not come to give us access to the secret things of God. Rather, he came to reveal the hidden mystery of how God would redeem the fallen world. And angels long to look into those things. But he spoke truth to focus us on present-day obedience. And that's why we can say with Solomon, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. God promises that he'll take care of the obstacles that lay in the paths of those who trust him. And that's why Rick doesn't have to struggle about whether or not to go independent. That's why he can sleep at night knowing that because of the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ and the sending of the spirit of wisdom into his heart and life, that's why he can sleep at night. He's not on a permanent plan B or C or D or Z because in Jesus, by his power and wisdom, there's only one plan, plan A. And therefore, Rick needs to do the hard work of immersing himself in the Word of God and immersing himself in the personality of Christ so that he can become the true personality that Christ made him to be. He needs to read his Bible. He needs to pray. He needs to gather information. He needs to get knowledge. He needs to be in community with other wise people. He needs to talk to and pray with his wife and then make a decision. And then he can sleep at night, here it is, he can sleep at night knowing that that decision was made in a protected environment for the great shepherd of the sheep, the resurrected son of God, the eternal and invincible king over heaven and earth. This Jesus is watching over him. And he can't lose and neither can we. If the great shepherd leads by his mighty resurrected hands toward the eternal life that he's already purchased for us, that he promises that we obtain by grace through faith, well, then we've already won, haven't we? If Jesus is your goal, and if Jesus is your companion, and if Jesus is your life, and if Jesus is your wisdom, you're good. So then, church, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Amen? God, thank you. Your mercies are new every morning. We love you so much. Thank you. Thank you for taking care of us. Thank you for awakening us. While we slept last night, you watched how do you do that? You're God. You shepherd our souls. We trust you. We submit to you. Oh God, what is it that you want us to do today that would reflect the life of Jesus Christ? Help us in that way. We love you. We thank you. And we praise you. And everyone said,